is fascinating as well in his statement, in his, um, is the operating earnings versus gap earnings yeah. they're required to report. That well, the, uh, the, the, gap, the gap earnings have got the profit and loss from the stock holdings. Yeah, yeah. Stock holdings is 50% of the balance sheet, yeah. roughly? Roughly. Roughly so 50 private, 50 um, stock, isn't it? My flatmate is an accountant, and I love the bit where he. Um, oh, when he got really angry about the CEO. He gets so mad about <laughs> CEOs bagging earnings. Um, but it is for. The problem is. It's human nature. We're so. You look at this, and it's so simple. Just invest for the long term in good companies. Quarterly, quarterly valuations are our enemy. Just same. <laughs> same here. If I was in charge of the FCA, God forbid, the first thing I would do would be can quarterly earning or quarterly valuations. The first year of quarterly client reports was 2020. 31st of December 2019 was the pre-COVID peak. The bottom was the 25th of March. Quarterly valuation strike point was a week later. By the 30th of June, client portfolios weren't, they weren't back to where they started the year, but they were pretty much nearly there. Mm. The first quarter they fell 20, the second quarter they rose about 15. Had a client had a six month valuation instead of a quarterly Wouldn't valuation. Well, they probably would have known, given what was going on. They were, sat, they, were, they, were sat, they were sat at home not doing anything, and they might have thought their portfolio had been hit. But it just sort of, it just goes to show, doesn't it? I mean, they were talking about the quarterly earning releases by um, you know the requirement for S&P 500 businesses and all listed businesses. They were talking about changing to six monthly, weren't they? It's just common sense. It is common sense. It is common sense. Which is kind of what we have in, in Europe, right? Where we have these, we have half yearly results, don't we? And trading updates. Different countries and different stocks have different procedures. I think and different, different year ends as well, that's the other thing. So BHP much change. So much it's got a June year end or something. So much changes from quarter to quarter, it's just not the annual is relevant and that's about it. It's yeah. too noisy, isn't it? There is too much noise. noise. We, we live for the noise, don't we? Too much noise and then a bid to fill the noise for the next 40 minutes. Just adding to the hot air. Welcome back. We've gone for <laughs> round two. I'm David Henry, investment manager in the London office, joined as usual by our regulars, Johnny Raymond and James Hughes. How are we fellas? Good. We're good. We're good. It's Survive a, the snow. It's a snow day. Well, you said last week, didn't you, or a couple of weeks ago, when it snows a wee bit, the country grinds to a complete halt, and mm. we, we seem to be taking along all right so the far. The trains are running today, and uh, I haven't heard of chaos on the M25 just yet, so mm. who knows, maybe we'll turn over a new leaf. The little people at home thought it was Christmas this morning, so that was exciting. Mm. I was very relieved not <laughs> I, I was very relieved the nursery was open still. <laughs> I did get there and did say... Nice to see you all in today. <laughs> Can't be dealing with having two small children at home. That's always a relief. That's always a relief, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what do you make of this market? Um, uh, uh, no, no strong opinion. Footsie's nearly at well, it's back below eight thousand now, so we can mm. unwind everything we talked about last week. I'm Mr. so bored. It's untrue by this market. It just fit. It's range bound, isn't it? Well, Mr. Powell ruined the party again last night, didn't he? Um, S&P was down, was it down 1.6? Yeah, and down again today, uh, yeah. fractionally. Although Sterling, Sterling has taken a beating so this week. Yeah, probably evened it out. I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, he's range bound. I think the data's very messy still. Um, it, yeah, we, we took, I think when we last did this, we talked a bit about the weather, didn't we, in January? We did. And that's, there's actually more and more out 
over the last week on that that January numbers um, were were Flatted. artificially false, probably. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, we yeah. had we had we had poor data in November and December, mm. which is why we were all talking about recession at the end of last year, and then we've had really good data for two months. Yeah. I and now we're all talking about six percent rates. I think the non-farms number on Friday is going to stink. Well, it wouldn't surprise me now. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right. And then, but then, what does that do to markets? Because it's it's sort of reversed. Puts the recession back on the agenda. Yeah, it's it? almost like economic <clears throat> projections are absolutely pointless when it comes to stocks because you've got to get the economic projection right, and you've got to get the stock market reaction yeah. right. Yeah. Um, the economic story I want to start off with is the good folks at Predimange getting oh, yeah. their third pay rise of the year. Mm -hmm. In my humble opinion, if anybody deserves a pay rise, it's the good folks at Pret because they are doing the Lord's work. Mm. But that is kind of indicative of where the, the job market is at the moment, right? And, and they're still getting cherry tomatoes in their salads. And the price hasn't changed. Arguably overpriced to begin with, mate, although I'd pay double usually. The FT yeah. did a chart once upon a time of the story of Pret versus Greggs, and yeah. they had a chart, and it was blue blobs and red blobs, and essentially all the Greggs were north of Watford Gap, and all the Prets were south of Watford Gap, and it was just the most beautiful chart I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I mean, Northern Ireland has just got its first Pret in the last six months, and I can't think of a worse place to send a Pret. Most people back home think that Hummus plays centre half for Germany. <laughs> my my brother-in-law and sister. Um, live in Sheffield and I took a picture once of a veggie prep and the response I can't, I can't say what the response <laughs> yeah. was on this vid on, on this podcast but it was something along the lines of I just give up with you southerners I know. I know. but all you're going to say like that is it's not disinflationary that is it if, if we keep getting wage growth at the you know lower mm. end of the pay scale higher propensity to spend probably quite inflationary and yeah. uh Benefits, which uh, is quite a big part of spending at the bottom end, are going up by the rate of inflation from 5th of April. Are they? So 10.7% rise in universal credit. Job seekers allowance, as it used to yeah. be known. Pensioners yeah. getting a 10.7% raise. I mean, it's quite, again, high marginal propensity to consume. So it's a lot. Yeah. I the the focus for me this is the phrase I've sort of been using for a little while is is inflation and the cost of of fun versus inflation and the cost of stuff. Yeah. I think inflation and the cost of stuff is over. So on on screen now we've got uh, Brent over the last twelve months down. Uh, we've got. That's in sterling, is it? Yeah, that's that's the one that you stand across. Yeah, that's that's weight, twelve months down. We've got lumber down twelve months. Yep. Copper. I mean, I was actually quite surprised the copper wasn't up, but even that's mm. down. Um, mm. I, I I think that inflation, the cost of fun, is now yesterday's story. It's how good is the job market, how good is the consumer, mm. and how willing are people to go out and spend money on having a good time. Agreed, agreed. And 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 the cost of fun is driven more and more by labour, and not as much by commodity prices as the cost of stuff, mm. which is very commodity price driven. So, but, uh, you if know, you're Pret or you're the local pub uh, or wherever, or the local restaurant, and you can't find staff, uh, you know, let's put your prices up, aren't you? Yeah, and we saw it. We saw it in Greg's numbers, didn't we? Yesterday or the day before was, you know, prices are up nine percent, costs are up nine percent. Um, so margin doesn't change for the time being. But you're exactly right, and I think 
you said it last week, you know, we all sat at home during COVID. We had no way of spending money really except on stuff. So funnily enough, we all bought loads of stuff. And now we're back out there. We're, we're spending on fun services um, until that party ends because potentially the consumer runs out of money. Just, just before I go on to that thread, um, Greg's isn't cheap as a, as a stock. No, it's great business. Twenty-two times earnings. It's good. Yeah, it's a good sort of roll-up growth story. So they've got quite a reasonable runway of growth, and I'm not rushing out to buy it on twenty-two times. Mm. But that's a ten-year, five-year average. It's a ten-year average. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It's quite interesting. They're opening stores. They're doing this trial, aren't they? They're keeping stores open until nine p.m. Mm. Actually, that's when a lot of their growth is coming from. Nine p.m. Yeah. If you think they've go for a couple of pints on the way home sausage roll <laughs> a sausage roll <laughs> I mean I, I I can come up with a very bullish narrative on Greg's based around return to work and recession and people coming back into the office because they don't want to lose their jobs and I think I wouldn't I don't know the numbers but I, I think Greg's are quite similar to WH Smith in the sense that there's yeah. lots of them in and around sort of train yeah. stations yeah. service um, stations now as well yeah yeah. They've got a very good template, and they know if, That's they, put, the price if they put a shop here, it's going to cost X million pounds to put the shop yeah. together, and it's yeah. a three-year payback or a five-year payback, and the yeah. return on capital is X. That's where it's such a clever model, mm. and that and that's where you know that's why it has the rating that it does. And at the moment, there is a lot of expansion still, and they're talking they're talking about doing the twenty-four they're doing the twenty-four hour um, drive-throughs, aren't they now? Yeah. Which Greg's yeah, yeah, yeah which I think is smart is very smart. Um, but no, I, I, to be honest, I've always wondered. Not that, not not that it's necessarily my go-to place, but you, I have walked past from time to time at five, six o'clock, and the whole thing's shut. So it does make sense to stay open until nine. Mm. Um, be interesting to see what that what that rollout story or what the growth looks like. But say I, I, I think it's a brilliant business. It's that's why it's on twenty-one times. I guess. Yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. When you before we started talking there about Greg's, you mentioned. You're stuck at home, only able to spend money on stuff. And mm. one of the themes that we talk about is that shock one-off impact of COVID. Um, I mean, this is this is online retail sales growth in the UK, isn't it, John? It's absolutely incredible. I mean, so yeah, proportion of retail sales online versus in store. <coughs> so when you go back January 2015. 12% of all retail sales were done online and it sort of goes up in a very nice straight line to pre-pandemic sure. 20% of retail sales, this includes food, so this is foods mm. and goods, this isn't just Amazon, um, and then it goes from 20% at the outset of the pandemic, peaks at 38% um, and it's come right back down to 25% and essentially you know, if you draw a line from the start of this chart in January 2015 to today it's on the trend line that it was on before and the covid period just looks like a complete anomaly and it is phenomenal it's made, and you know we were never going back to a supermarket we were all going to buy all our stuff online all our food online and, and i don't know about you but how depressing would that word be i'm pretty fed up of going back to the post office to return shoes that don't fit <laughs> and then <laughs> go, please let me just go and try them on first <laughs> So true. Stop buying it for ill-fitting <laughs> shoes, then, John. Oh, I mean, there's a, there's a load of things like this, isn't there? There's a load of economic numbers, and and COVID just breaks the chart or causes this one-off mm. shock. The analogy I use sometimes with clients is, you lob a rock into um, an Irishman, love a rock, obviously, <laughs> love a rock into you know 
a pool of water or a lake or something, and it and you know the ripples start out very strongly and then sort of dissipate yeah, over time, and it does feel like energy. that yeah. shock is sort of dissipating over time. And you know, online sales is one of them. It is amazing. You're right though. If you draw the, if you draw a line along the old trend line, I mean, you're you're we're not a million miles away now, are we? We're, and that line's yeah. never well. It probably plateaus at some stage, but you know the yeah, idea. Well, of I think we used to say what is the right? We used to say thirty percent right? didn't yeah. we? We could get to. Yeah. The UK, um, interestingly, this is the one of the highest in the world. The UK, yeah, I think the UK maybe South Korea. South Korea is number one. Yeah, if and you go to, Nordics. I'm pretty sure if you went to Europe pre-COVID, e-commerce saturation was only about six, seven percent. Yeah, much lower. Yeah, I don't much know what low. it is now. Yeah, well, the UK, yeah, UK, UK is, was always and, and it's lower yeah. in the US as well. Urban population quite small, island small nation, island, yeah. easy to roll out yeah. logistics. Yeah, probably. In the states, that's what. What do you reckon the penetration? Well, they, they don't have next day delivery, do they? They've only just Amazon have only just rolled it out in the major urban areas. Yeah. Well, most I think a, a lot a lot of goods are transported by train, aren't they, in the US? Mm. Well, it's a big old big old place, isn't it? Well, you um, yeah. you mentioned Amazon. I mean, yeah, that's, same, that's the same chart, right? Yeah. Show me where COVID was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in a similar vein, Segro. Segro. So that's Segro is interesting one. So Segro's property company formerly known as Slough Estates and they own warehouses and big sheds as they call them in the business basically in and around Slough <laughs> and Thames Valley and if you drive up the M1 or along the M4 you see lots of these big sheds dotted around and they're basically just warehouses full of stuff and it's yeah. a lot of it's e-commerce and, and Segro was one of the sort of darlings of the Covid era and there's two, two sides to this story one is this kind of story around industrial property and the, but the other side of it of course was interest rates and bond deals so in August 2021, pretty much when this chart peaked, when the stock peaked, just yeah. just before, UK 10-year gilt was yielding 0.1% a year. And you were buying Segro on a kind of 3.5-4% yield. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which made sense. Made a lot of sense. Mm. Now, today, the UK 10-year gilt is approaching 4%. So funnily enough, if I'm going to buy Segro, I still want my risk premium. So my risk yeah. premium is yeah. 6%. To go from a yield of 4% to a yield of 6%, the share price has to fall by a third, which is actually pretty much what it's done, it's fallen by a third. Of course, the other thing was Amazon came out and said they essentially had too many... Um, too many sheds. Too many sheds. In the um, States? Uh, but focus on the U. Well, they, they sort of spun it off into the UK slightly, they came out with a later statement, didn't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, too, it basically expanded too quickly. I mean, um, I mean, the last mile delivery on logistics seems to be the really interesting part of property again now that's where <coughs> kind of some of the larger property companies which have diversified assets that's where they seem to be moving to because actually the last mile delivery is the really tricky bit mm. um, it's mm. where it all goes local and then they have to deliver to front door um, but that's that's probably the interesting bit but I once visited an Amazon warehouse actually. Did you? Yeah. I mean it was organized through QC. All right. Oh Ollie yeah, 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 okay. It was okay, um, that was interesting. It was really interesting. They yeah. had they had reels of the black Amazon tape which went under a tiny little moisture thing which essentially made it wet and then it chopped automatically and went on the parcel. Oh, cool. It's it very interesting. But it was. Yeah. Yeah, we we've been talking a bit about these sort of property companies in, in our group chat. I mean how do you think about these things in terms of valuation? I mean obviously Four percent yield doesn't necessarily make a huge amount of sense in a world where that's your risk-free rate. But we've got a. I mean, you can go from a from a Seagro to 
something like an Ashura, which is very, very defensive primary healthcare properties. GP surgeries. GP surgeries, you know, traditional, you know, when I was younger, our GP surgery went through the door. It was always up the steepest flight of stairs ever. I don't know why every GP surgery seemed to be the same. And there was two doctors in there. It was not particularly hygienic. And, you know, and now there's these very plush primary healthcare centres where you, you know, you might have um, a pharmacy downstairs, you might have physio integrated into it. And typically, yeah, there's huge lifts for any anyone to get up, but you might have eight or nine GPs there. Um, and again, the, you know, these are great assets. Pre probably prior to interest rate movements, they were probably yielding four and a half, five. Yeah, maybe slightly. Actually, no, probably four, slightly four, four, four. Four rings about. Um, in you know the rents index link, it's essentially paid by the government. So we were very happy taking a four percent from the government, which compared to the point 0.1 from a guild um, and you've got some inflation protection as well but you know that share price is probably off 35% mm. from where it was at the high and again you just want that gap over the risk free rate now you know I think a business like Assure or you know, we put on Seagrove or supermarket income read or whatever else you know these are brilliant assets still do you get that capital return back quickly no, unless rates go to towards go zero again. To them, yeah. But you do get a very nice income generation. I think for a long-term client where you want some protection from this as a starting point, they're very good places to be. Mm. Um, but you do want that. You do want that big gap and, you want and a buffer. You want a yeah, margin of safety. Yeah. And, our and I think you probably are getting that in a in a range of these sorts of assets. You are. And our property analyst Ollie has done a huge amount of work on this, mm. which is exceptionally helpful. It's it doesn't look great if you've bought these things 18 months ago, but and I think if you if you push forward a few years and you get these lovely income streams, they're a very good place to be still. Yeah. Um, you've got to be obviously careful of, of covenants and, and loan to value, etc. but mm. you know, we do the work on that and, and you know, we're comfortable. Um, just on interest rate projections, <laughs> I love this. Um, this is the Philadelphia Fed survey of professional forecasters, um, aka very smart people. Um, <laughs> the dotted lines going back to 2003 are their projections for the future course of interest rates, almost entirely without exception hopeless. Um, the solid green line is where interest rates actually ended up. Um, I mean, these are some of the biggest brains probably in the world, and they can't get it right. Yeah, it's. I mean, not to dunk on them, but they can't. Well, I they're mean, all did, they're all the same, they, aren't they? They're all up. <laughs> did they ever get it right? Yeah, I there mean, were a few points. 2016, 2017, twenty eighteen. They're all a decent run at the minute. <laughs> <laughs> so clock. I mean, 2012, 2012 and a half ish. They sort of got it right. So they've been right when rates have actually gone up over a space yeah. of 18 months. Um, but of course that's not the environment we've been in for the last 10 years. I, I remember 3% yield in the 10 year guilt. You know, 10 years ago, 11 years mm. ago. God, rates are low. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and bonds, like it's not like equities where theoretically they can keep going up and up and up and up. Like there is, should be a floor. Mm. Um, Unless you're in Japan. Or and we Germany. got almost to the, the very, very bottom in terms of yields, but that's great. Though. You know, it's listen. It's these people are much, much, much smarter than my, than I. But I, I think it's just a, a humility, a 
point of humility to have the the thing it's it's the same with the the strategist S&P 500 year-end targets right none like if you listen to a lot of these guys and you hear them speak none of them actually want to give an end of year S&P 500 target but human it's a bit like it's it's not the same Mm. as you know who's going to win on Saturday and you know who do you think is going to win well it doesn't really matter not really Um, so these guys are all the same They, they, they do actually think more in probability terms than mm. we probably give them credit for but the whole kind of world just asks where do you think the market's going to be at the end of the year and they're forced to give a point estimate which they know is not going to be right I think the best S&P <coughs> earning estimates are the ones that are um, based on calculations and statistics which is what has the annual earnings growth of the S&P been over the last 50 years if you stick that in a model and put it on year in year Actually, that tracks pretty closely to what the S and P does. It's just the S and P does yeah, this. Oscillates yeah, exactly. So I think so they're yeah. the best sort of end of year targets to to, to keep around mm. or to look at. But mm. um, yeah, trying to predict the future is uh, well, I'll be on a beach somewhere. It's really, really difficult. <laughs> it's really, really difficult. I got asked. I can't remember what the paper was, but I got asked to do a predictions for twenty twenty three type okay. thing about two months ago now um, I mean how are you getting on with those <laughs> <laughs> behind the sofa type stuff I mean yeah, bonds that perform equities well done Dave well done you're Good a moron um, just on the just on the economy before we we go on um, off the back of that un- unemployment chart that you shared with us last week um, I asked Billy to segregate the returns of the S&P a similar methodology, but but based on GDP. I mean, there's not a huge amount to say here, other than too hot growth or you know too slow growth in the economy is not great for stocks. Uh, mm. Most of the time, economic growth sort of chugs away in the middle, and in that environment, stocks do really well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. High growth means probably high, in, high inflation and strongly rising interest rates, which is not a great backdrop mm. as we saw last year, and low growth probably means the economy is not doing great and therefore earnings are falling um, yeah about four to five sweet spot and by by definition outliers happen more rarely so yeah. actually probabilistically you're more likely to be in the sort of centre there and get decent mm. decent returns what period of time is this over? Uh, it was going back I, th- oh, I think it's 30s, 30s. maybe was it the okay. started in don't quote me on that I'm afraid but yeah. you know I would say <laughs> over over pretty much any data set that you could get it, this would be a similar story yeah. this mm. is what I was expecting to see mm. hence it made it into the article <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, good. but it makes you know it makes sense doesn't it if you've got reasonable growth but not too high you know markets before yeah um, 100% 100% return on capital employed um, that is enough on the economy. Um, have you read Buffett's latest missive? Certainly have. It was an absolute joy. So if you haven't read it, um, Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, annual shareholder letter. Um, what age is he? He's 92. Charlie's 96, 97. If anyone is young and upcoming and getting into the investment game and wants to learn about investing, going back and reading every single letter from year dot which is freely and it's ten, it's, it's 10 pages right it's not yeah. warm yeah, this was apparently this is one of his shortest ones ever oh really yeah, normally a lot longer yeah there i mean he just it's phenomenal how he writes and he he just puts it down so simply doesn't he that's that yeah it's it's always a joy mm. i mean it's it's sort of mandatory reading i this one in particular 
maybe it's because of what age he is and what age Charlie is, but it just feels I, I try to take as much from it as possible. Um, because they might not be around, <laughs> let's be blunt, no. for, for much no. longer, certainly active investors. Um, tell you what I liked about this. It is absolutely dripping in humility. Mm. This is one of the best to ever do it. I think the phrase he uses is certain is a satisfactory result. Mm. Mm. It is. Um, in an industry that's, that can be quite hubristic, uh, this, is, this is a real palate cleanser. I think good, good fund managers should have humility because mm. the future is by default uncertain and unknowable and therefore yeah. you know, making calls, positioning, buying stocks based on what you think might happen doesn't end up happening. You need to, you need to have an awareness of that and he clearly does. And he also sort of, the other interesting thing that, that jumped out at me was that we talked about making lots of very average decisions and lots of mistakes mm. but only six decisions that were really really good moved the needle and really moved the needle over 50, 50 years 60 years yeah. at this point a report card from me this is a quote at this point a report card from me is appropriate in 58 years of Berkshire management most of my capital allocation decisions have been no better than so-so our satisfactory results have been the product of about a dozen truly yeah. good decisions mm. that would be about one every five years um. Yeah, this this thing is compounded at twenty two point nine percent. I think mm. since day one. Four million percent return, isn't that? On, since going back to. Yeah. Even even here. Three point seven eight million percent. <laughs> since nineteen sixty four versus twenty four thousand seven hundred percent. For the S and P. Right. It's just. It's mind blowing. The um, you Johnny sit on our funds committee. Um, made a lot of fund managers. Mm. How much does fund manager personality and, and sort of feel come into your thinking when, when you meet someone that runs, runs money bit. for our class? I think different, different people will have different preferences. I like a very sort of solid philosophy and process and that's repeatable and that one that you know will go through periods that's not <coughs> going to perform well, whether that's quality growth, whether that's out and out value, whether, you know, whether that's high quality, doesn't really matter where you've got what I don't like is where you've seemingly got a manager picking stocks a little bit off feel and his own whim and he might be very good at that mm. and he might be the needle in the haystack but that doesn't feel very repeatable for me that feels a bit more hedge fund manager type style and I think if we're buying some Japanese equities or US equities or whatever it might be I don't think that's for me, that's a bit of a red flag and a warning sign. So I want to see, you know, a philosophy that, that is sort of grounded in some academic theory and, okay, why are these stocks, whether that's high returns on equity mm. or just cheap and, and, you know, ridiculously cheap for no real reason. Um, I think for me, that's probably the most important aspect. Yeah, when, when a fund manager seemingly doesn't really have a kind of structure around his decision-making process and is a little bit making decisions off a whim, then that for me is, is something that I'm not a fan of. I, 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 I don't know if you agree with me on this. I think that fund selection is actually harder than stock selection because you've got that added variability of, mm. of the, the, the well, I th I think person what, running. I think what's very difficult is you put a fund into the portfolio for a reason. Mm. Um, and the manager changes his mind or changes his style very quickly without really communicating it properly. So I won't, won't mention the, 
the, the, the US exposed fund, but and it's not the one you're going to th you're you're probably thinking of either. It's <clears throat> but I bought a, hedge, a US hedge fund strategy based on a load of swaption exposure to protect against interest rates rising, and then woke up two weeks later and a lot of it had been unwound and put into a very speculative streaming business um, where ten percent of the fund had been deployed, and that's you know that's the really hard thing. You know, you invest for all the clients you're looking after into a strategy based on a brief or an update you've had, you make a decision that you very much agree with that strategy and then the person you're invested with changes it. And and actually well, the fund we're talking about goes exactly back to what you said, which is that is doing something on a whim. Yeah. It's, it's but it also upsets the balance of the rest of the portfolio, right? Because you would have positioned that does. fund in the portfolio for a specific reason. 100%. And now they're doing something totally yeah. different and yeah. that undermines <coughs> the rest of the portfolio. Yeah. That scenario that you've mm. just outlined there is why you should never take financial advice from someone who's on the TV. Because what they are saying... Aren't we on the TV? What, no, <laughs> I, no. Listen, you'd be mad to take advice from us. But, no, no, but someone, you know, even a fund no, manager that goes... Some, not. you know, multi-billionaire that goes on CNBC and says, this is what I think about the world. Yeah, you know, yeah, if that's 100%. someone that runs money for your clients and two weeks later takes, you know, swerves off to the right... Mm, totally changes. You know, what's the, how do you have visibility yeah. when said person might... You know... It is always certain high-profile hedge fund mm. manager thinks the end of the world is coming. We don't get updates on their opinion changing, no. so yeah. that no. is no way no. to run your in, in no. your no. investments. And again, you know, going back to what you said about um, being quite structured in the way money is run, is we think about regions and different sleeves of exposure. So you know, a value sleeve, a growth sleeve, someone potentially, you know, for a region that we might want in the middle. Um, and you need those big teams behind it to make sure that process doesn't change, mm. so that we know where we are. Um, you know, we've added global equity income fund recently because it does something very specific, mm -hmm. um, and we feel in this environment it's going to work very well. Mm. You know, the environment of higher rates, higher inflation. Yeah, and um, that, that guy's been doing it since '06, exactly. so we know that '06 to '08 his yeah. strategy worked really well in a high rates world. Yeah. High inflation, high issue inflation world, yeah. and but the performance through the mid noughties when the only thing you wanted to own was U.S. growth was yeah. fairly pedestrian. Yeah. But you know we think we're probably going to a world that looks slightly different to that. Yeah. And essentially, when a dividend yield gets too close to what the index is, he always has a decent gap. The position gets mm. sold. Yeah. And, and we quite like funds like that, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Fairly no structured. surprises. We do not want any surprises. And no. I think that, and There's and too I, much going when, on. When we get <laughs> on, on the funds committee, when we get surprises, mm. like we don't mind underperformance. Underperformance is fine and to be expected, but surprises versus you know expectations mm. in a certain market environment, very unhelpful yeah. and unwelcome. Mm. Um, just before we move on from, from the Buffett thing, um, some nice philosophical stuff in here. This is one of Munger's. Early on, write your desired obituary mm. and then behave accordingly. <laughs> um, decent, decent sort of principle to live your life by, right. I think. Um, so, so moving on, um, Johnny, you shared this this chart with us. Um, we get have been getting a lot of emails entitled "The Death of the 40 Portfolio." So, the classic starting asset allocation for a balanced investor: sixty percent in stocks, forty percent in bonds. Um, Johnny, do you want to talk us through what we can see here? 
Yeah, so we would call it in the UK a typical balanced portfolio, call it 60-40 in the US. We've got one, two, three, four, six negative years on the charts here. And every time there's been a negative year, it's been followed by a positive year. And some of the poorer years, so 2008 was minus 26%, um, 2002 minus 6%, the following year after a larger drawdown in 6040, you've mm. had a very strong positive bounce back return. So plus 25 in 2003, plus 23% in 2009. So it's not a surprise. I mean, if you if you think about it, this comes back what we've talked about before. If you go back to January 2022, mm. your 6040 was made up essentially of bonds yielding 1% and equities trading on 20 times, 20 times earnings. So you roll forward a year, bonds are now yielding 4% and equities are now trading on 15 times, depending on where you want to put the earnings. Mm. Well, that's, you know, a totally different landscape. Oh, and we've already talked about property, Segro, et cetera, is down a third. So, you know, if you think about it fundamentally, mm. then a 60-40 investor is buying assets today that look substantially better from a valuation perspective. And valuation doesn't help over the short term, it makes not a jot of difference over six or 12 months, to be fair. But over five or 10 years, it is probably one of the only things that matters. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of natural to think that when you get a strong setback, like we've had um, in years gone by, that we get, you know, a decent bounce back. I think you don't necessarily need a great economic outcome to see a good return for a classic portfolio this year. I personally think the utopian outcome <clears throat> end of 23 is if rates are where they are at the moment or a little bit lower an equity sort of model three. Inflation down, but not, not back at two. Not cratered. No. And in that environment, your bond allocation ticks along at three, four percent. Equities, let's say, you know, five, six. I think it's, I think, you know, as a starting point today, I'm quite excited. It's, mm. I think if I was sitting here, this time last year, I was not excited because you know, things were some so unknown, so much panic around. I think we sit here today. We've got, you know, we said it last week, but very, very good quality corporate bonds. You know, yielding five sexes, short dated. You know, you've got, you've got um, cash. Yeah, exactly. Yielding four. <laughs> exactly. You've got natural dividend yield from the UK of fourish, maybe mm. it was slightly under three point eight. Um, fine, the US doesn't doesn't yield as highly but again you know that's ticked up because of the constituents and, and valuations have come back a bit so yeah, I completely agree I think you know we're not we're not forecasting but we're starting from a much lower multiple of earnings and on the other hand or, or in truth since the financial crisis we've really been sitting here wishing that rates go back to what we deem as a normal environment Mm. Which is you get you know savers get a reasonable return on cash. It's really important. Um, inflation is the bit we will worry about. Um, but as John says, you know if that's tamed or slightly lower by the mm. end of the year, I think I think you know this year will be. It, it's a very good starting point. The, um, you know what? Given what we said about economic projections being absolutely pointless and <coughs> impossible, frankly. You know, you're starting as an investor. Take the emotion out of it. You're starting valuation expected forward return is, I mean, that's your north star, right? And 100%. yeah, 
times will change, things will happen, unexpected things will happen, of course mm. they will. Um, but history, if history is any guide whatsoever, if you sit through that, then you'll get a cracking outcome. Mm. And doubly so if you, if you get a decent starting valuation. Mm. Um, I mean, my... I've absolutely no idea what this will do. I think, actually, one of the... What we saw last year was very, very painful, particularly in the bond market, but I think it was a necessary reset. Not just for investors, but also central banks don't have to resort to unconventional methods of policy the next time we go into an economic slowdown. Mm. Um, we can cut rates. I mean, they probably won't cut them to where they were before, or certainly, you know, it would be better if we don't do that. I don't think central banks ever want to go back to that environment. No. I don't think they ever want to do so QE ever look again. Fewer tools in your arm, right? Yeah. Also, there's so many companies that survived on the basic, you know, we call them zombie, zombie companies, companies, but so many companies survived because debt was free, and they shouldn't have survived. And actually, you know, it, it, I mean, we're seeing it in some of the businesses we own. Um, you know, it, it's corporate Darwinism, which is mm. survival of the fittest, and, yep. and good companies take market share, and they grow, even mm. in a bad environment for the economy, they grow earnings because they are great businesses and other businesses fall over. And I'm not saying businesses falling over is a good thing, but quite often these businesses weren't really working anyway. You know, there's a chance for people to do something else or to be more entrepreneurial and have an opportunity. Quite often it's a kickstart that yeah. the economy needs. That were, if you were a so gambling man, mm. where do you think, in what sector the next exciting company comes from? Do we see some sort of energy type name? Because uh, you know, as we were saying a couple of weeks ago, that <coughs> sort of sector has been starved of capital. And yeah, I, I you know the last ten years was very much tech led. You know, we we've already said we we think the next ten years will be led by a very different set of businesses. I think energy transition, renewables is a very it's easy to see that sector really doing well. I, I think on the other hand, I think um, I think healthcare and biotech. I think you know there's there's a lot of excitement going mm. on there. You've got you know Moderna. They are making huge leaps forward in terms of technology around testing um, and where they, where they are with developing vaccines. You know some of these biotech businesses are trading. At less than cash value, um, on the Nas- I think at one stage last year, th- over thirty percent of of Nasdaq well, biotech I remember was, looking at a biotech trading. ETF, and it was just yeah. I, but you know the cheap. the good biotech businesses are going to be taken out. Um, you know they always are by large pharma yeah. because they need that growth. development. Yeah. yeah, but I think we are we are potentially at a pivot point in terms of how we develop. You know, we're absolutely at a pivot point in terms of how we develop vaccines, but I think the health system is going to leap forward. Mm. Um, mm. So, so my money's on, my money's on sort of healthcare and med tech and wearables and things I, like that. I buy that. I can see that. Mm. Um, just on the point about earnings growth being really positive coming out of recessions, and um, you tend to see some exciting companies coming out of recessions. Um, one of the prevailing narratives of the US market in the 2010s was that it was all multiple expansion because of zero rates um, per Jack Bogle. That doesn't actually appear to be the case. And the number one driver of the annual returns that you saw during the 2010s was earnings growth. Um, 
global financial crisis creating some of the most exciting companies yeah. in the world. My, my own, I'm not going to pick holes in this data whatsoever because it tells the story, but if you start on the 1st of January 2010, the earnings were already depressed from the financial crisis. So yeah. you had a massive snap because, because corporate earnings fell mm. 50% in 08, 9, 10 because the banking sector basically went bust. So I just wonder whether you're, you know, it just the start of the 2010s coincided with a very depressed period of earnings. So, I, you know, not not to pick holes in the data, but um, that might just, I wonder if you move that on a year or two and start in 2012 or 2008, whether that looks a bit different. But, it, yeah, I mean, earnings growth. With multiples have been artificially high then as well in that scenario. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. So, it, I mean, it's interesting. There haven't been many decades where you've seen multiple contraction. The 70s is the one that jumps out. Look at that. You had earnings growth of 10% a year, um, but annual returns on stocks were only 6%. So you had a you know 7.5% a year multiple compression, which is quite savage. And the 70s, you know, if there's one reason why we're all paranoid about the current environment of high inflation and rising interest rates is because we've all read about the 70s. Mm. And it's fair to say, if you owned most assets in the 70s you did not do very well because inflation killed most assets you wanted to own gold and land equities you know earnings and dividends kept pace with inflation in the 70s but you lost so much on the multiple side of things that in real terms you you know it wasn't a great time for equity investing and for bond investing it was even worse so you know it's interesting just to pick out little periods and sort of if there's one thing I guess that that would keep me lying awake at night, it it is a return to that 1970s environment. Um, I, just, I, I don't think don't. I don't think we are going to, but it's a sort of no. you know again it comes back to that that probable probability scenario analysis, and there's a sort of five or ten percent chance that we have a sort of 70s type environment, and it would be pretty bleak. The longer oil stocks hold up, the more I'm convinced that the reason that they're held up is because people are buying it as an inflation hedge, because mm. the oil price has cracked. And one of the things that would typically work in that scenario, I don't think that's people's no. base case. Yeah. I don't think it's our base case, <laughs> no, any no, of us. No, no, no. But if you're going to own something that should theoretically do okay in that environment, I think oil stocks and on an undemanding valuation and mm. paying you, you know, eight nine percent dividend yeah. yields. Well, commodities are, were about the only thing that did okay in the seventies. So it's gold. How's gold doing at the moment? Gold. I, really got I, I got an email during the week um, from someone I love reading from, and. There was a little piece in it which said, "In what environment does gold perform? Does it ever <laughs> perform?" And you know, we all—I've said for years, gold. You know, when there's inflation, gold performs. Oh, but not this time because rates are rising. It never performs when rates are rising. And then, you know, we'll go to JRCFA. When when does gold perform? It, it's. Unexpected inflation. It's unexpected. It, dances, it sort of dances it, it, the atom <coughs> beat, doesn't it? It does its own thing. Very uh, And falling real yields. No, I don't think. I don't think this episode we need to get into the difference between real, well, real yields is essentially mm. bond yields, less inflation. And when that's falling, then you tend to see gold do quite well. But it, I, I totally agree with you. Mm. Like, it's very difficult. I mean, we we've used it tactically in portfolios, and and at times, you know, we have made money from it. But gosh, it's got. It's got very difficult. To mm. You've got the currency overlay as well because obviously it's inverted to the dollar. So when the dollar goes up, gold goes down. But then if we're buying gold in sterling, then it, you know that sort of works the other way. It's sort of hard to mm. scratch my head a bit and it hurts. So I just think, can I just buy some quality equities? Yeah, I think yeah, I think as you, as you go back to on 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 the oil stocks, you know, great dividend yields. It's 
or you know, reasonable inflation hedge, why wouldn't you do that instead? It's a bit simpler. I think I'm biased against gold because the first fund manager meeting I ever went to <laughs> was a gold manager in 2011. And he thought the I was like, have you heard of gold, lads? <laughs> It's going to three thousand dollars, and of course, and it, you know that was the top. That was the top. Of course, it was because, yeah. and you know, yeah. puts you off the asset. Um, yeah. yeah, that's us, guys. You have fun. It was great. Good, loved it. Really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed that. What are you up to at the weekend? What am I? Uh, do you know what? We've got a free weekend, and I'm really looking forward to. it. I'm hoping it snows again, so I can take the little ones out, play, having have some snowball fires. Amazing. Um, but no, uh, you know, one of the rare weekends when we've got nothing planned, so very much looking forward to it. Brilliant. What about yourself? Well, what else? We've got the wooden spoon decider in Rome, and uh, I haven't checked the odds, but I'm going to assume that Italy are favourites because they have been playing some decent stuff, and yeah. Wales look they look good against Ireland. But, um, is but it the world, um, isn't it the World Cup next year? World Cup's next year, yeah. Oh, this year, sorry. This year, yeah. yeah. Sorry, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this year. Um, and we've got you and Green on the other side. God, you must be green. very chipper. Doing all right. Doing all right. Playing very Ireland well. are just doing their classic thing. This is the most Irish thing in the world. We can't do too well because then we'll pick before the World Cup. Then if they do poorly, why aren't we playing better? Yeah, yeah. We just can't be can't be happy. Have you yeah. got an, an English coach though? Very good. <laughs> and half the team are Kiwis, but apart from that. Um, thanks very much, folks. As usual, if you want us to discuss anything specific, drop me a note on david.henry at quilterchiviat.com. Thank you to JR and to James, and we'll see you next time. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye bye.